this Palm Sunday, we're beginning a three-part mini-series, uh, three sermons leading up to Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, next week, uh, on Jesus' last days. And we're calling this series, Lord of Life. And this Sunday, I'm going to be preaching on a passage from the book of Matthew. So I'm going to ask that you take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 26. And our text is verses 36 through 42. Okay, so if you have your Bible, take that, and I'm going to read this text to us, and then we'll get right into our, our message this morning. So wherever you are, you have your Bible, read along with me as I read out loud. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. <clears throat> There's a famous painting. It's called The Death of Socrates. You might have seen it before. And it shows the famous philosopher Socrates in bed minutes before his death. His disciples are all around him. And the backstory to this painting is that Socrates has been condemned to death for corrupting the youth of Athens with these radical philosophical ideas. And he was supposed to be executed by a drinking poison hemlock. And you can see from this painting that the Socrates followers, they don't want him to die. They're surrounding him like loyal disciples, and some of them are contorted in grief. There's one with his hands covering his face, another leaning against the wall. There's another one turning away with arms upraised, another one slumped at the foot of the bed. But in contrast to all these guys who are just contorted in grief, Socrates himself is the only one in the room who's sitting up straight and, and strong. And with his left hand, he's pointing up, indicating these eternal, unchanging realities that he had taught his disciples about. And then with his right hand, you see he's reaching for this cup, and in that cup is the deadly poison hemlock. And Plato, who's one of Socrates' pupils, writes about this scene. He wasn't present, but he heard about it. And it tells us when the man held out the cup to Socrates, Socrates took it cheerfully. Not a tremble, not a change in his color or looks, but looking full at the man right under his eyebrows, which is typical of the way Socrates would look. Now, given this example 
of courage. We, we look at this painting, and you're like, wow, there's a man who, who was courageous in the way he faced his death. Uh, he actually reached for the cup of poison. Does it strike you as somehow strange that Jesus approached his death with such suffering? I mean, here is a secular guy. Here is a man who lived hundreds of years before the time of Christ, Socrates, and he faces his death with courage, with cheerfulness. He looks straight at the man who's offering him the cup, and his, the color in his face doesn't even change. And then Jesus, the Lord of life, Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus who told his disciples over and over again, fear not, when he approaches his last hours, he approaches it with such agony and pain. He literally falls on his face and begs God, God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And the reason why I present this contrast, like I, sh I showed you this picture, and, and I'm presenting this question in our minds. If Socrates faced his death with such courage, and many others throughout history have also faced their death with, with courage and calmness, and then Jesus... And the passage I just read begins to be sorrowful and troubled and tells the disciples that he's sorrowful even to death. Why does Jesus face his death with such agony? That's a question I want us to think about. Why is it that Jesus faces his death with the, the intense agony that's described here in Matthew's gospel? And the reason why that's an important question for us to ask right now is because I think it's safe to say there's hardly been any other time in, in recent memory that death has been so much on our minds. I mean, even the word count in the news is like we're, t we're, we're counting death rates of people and the possibility of many more dying because of the spread of a disease is increasing daily. You know, it's not a bad thing to think about death. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 90, O oh Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. See, thinking about death is not just an obsession with being morbid or death, but rather thinking about our death in the right way is the first step to wise living. And so it's important for us to, to consider this, like if Jesus entered into his death with such agony, can we trust him with our lives? Can we trust him with our death? Why is it that Jesus faced his death with such suffering? And the truth is, as we look at this passage, is that Jesus was facing so much more than just his death. Jesus was facing something infinitely more than just his death, and we're going to find out what that was as we walk through this passage. All right, so that's what I want us to do. We're going to walk through the passage that I just read in three parts. We're going to look at the setting of Jesus' suffering. We're going to look at the reason for Jesus' suffering, and then the outcome of his suffering, because we want to know why did Jesus suffer so intensely? Why did he agonize like this? So the setting, the reason, and the outcome of Jesus' suffering. So the setting of his suffering. So you're with me, you're understanding, understanding that we're asking the question, why did Jesus suffer so intensely when facing his death, when so many others have faced death with calmness? Let's look at the setting. First of all, when was it? If you look earlier in the passage, you find that Jesus had just been with his disciples for their last supper. But this isn't any normal supper that they've eaten together for several reasons. First of all, Jesus has just dismissed Judas 
because Judas is going out to betray Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders who wanted Jesus dead. Judas has already met with these leaders, and, and he's received 30 pieces of silver. It's hard for us to precisely estimate how much money that would have been in, in 21st century dollars, but it would have been somewhere between a month or two of wages. It, it wouldn't have been an incredible large amount of money. Nevertheless, Judas did have a craving for money. He had this. He, he was typically in charge of the, the purse or the, the bag that the disciples kept their money in. And so he had received money in exchange for revealing to the Pharisees the right time and place to hand Jesus over to them. And Jesus has dismissed Judas. And, and he has also told the disciples that they're all going to be uh, offended because of him that very night. And all the disciples, they've been following Jesus for three years, and all of them are like, uh, we're not going to do this. We're not going to abandon you. We're not going to forsake you. Most of all, Peter, who's the outspoken one, he said, Lord, I'm never, ever going to reject you. I'm never going to deny you. And Jesus says, not only are you going to be offended because of me, but three times you're going to say that you never knew me. This is the time. This is the setting of Jesus' suffering. But also something else very important happened in that supper before Jesus entered the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had taken a, a bread and a cup, and that's going to be important. We're going to see later on in the passage. Jesus took a cup, and he said, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you. Jesus is saying, there, There's something I'm about to do for you that's symbolized in this wine. And the disciples take it, not fully understanding what they're doing. But the circumstances, the time leading up to Jesus' suffering in the garden tell us that there is a catastrophic event unlike any other that's going to take place in the future. Now, that's, that's when it was. Now, what about where? We're still looking at the setting of Jesus' suffering, when it was, the circumstances leading up to it. Now, where it was. You can see in verse 36, and this is the beginning of the passage that we read. It's our text. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now, that could be a mouthful, but it's actually an Aramaic word meaning an oil press or an olive press. And how fitting it is, is it that this place that means oil press or olive press was a place where Jesus' soul itself would be pressed, crushed out, from which would flow something beneficial for the sake of others. That's the name of this place, Gethsemane. Now the people, we're still looking at the setting. We've looked at the time, the place, Gethsemane, and now who was there? Well, Jesus dismissed eight of his disciples. You see, Judas was gone. So there were eight plus the three, Peter, James, and John. And he takes those three who had been his inner circle of disciples, and he goes into this place. It was, the Gethsemane was probably uh, somehow blocked off, maybe by a wall or, or a hedge, and he takes them within. And he tells them, sit here while I go over there and pray. You see, Jesus is getting lonelier and lonelier. He's dismissed eight of his disciples. He's already dismissed Judas and then eight of other disciples. Then he takes three with him, and then he puts the three in one place, and he goes off by himself. But these three that are with Jesus, again, his inner circle of disciples, of Peter, the outspoken, bold one, the one that had said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then James and John, two brothers, they had left their livelihood, they left their fishing uh, tackle, their fishing boat to follow Jesus. They were called the sons of thunder, the sons of, of Zebedee. John was one who was especially close uh, to Jesus, and he brings them with him during this moments of agony. The fact that Jesus brings these three may remind you of another incident 
uh, that had happened in the life of Jesus with these three. And that is months earlier, Jesus had chosen these same three, Peter, James, and John, to take them onto a mountain. And at that mountain, on top of that mountain, Jesus was transformed in front of them. Like they saw a glimpse of Jesus' divine being. Matthew describes Jesus' clothes as being as white as light, and his face is shining like the sun. And so Peter, James, and John had seen Jesus at the pinnacle of his glory during his earthly ministry, and now they were about to see Jesus at the valley of his most intense suffering. This is the setting of Jesus, the time, the place, the people, and now what happened. When it happened, who was with him, where it happened, and now what happened. You could see how Jesus felt when he said, when Matthew says in verse 37, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He expresses this feeling to the disciples when he says, my soul, in verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And we see this also in his physical posture. Going a little further, verse 39, he fell on his face. Luke tells us that the intensity of Jesus' agony was so great that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And what did he do? The Bible tells us that Jesus prayed. And this is where I want you to be especially attentive, okay? Because we're, we're quickly transitioning from the setting of Jesus' suffering. Again, we're asking the question, why did Jesus suffer so intensely? We're looking at the setting, and we're about to look at the, at the reason. But before we do, we have to understand this all-important point. And that is what Jesus prayed. In, in verse 39, of, this is Matthew 26, Jesus says, My Father, he, he nearly always addressed God as his Father. He said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then he goes and he sees his disciples sleeping. He says, Can't you stay awake and pray with me? Watch and pray. And he goes back to that place by himself and he prays again. Very similar. He says, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it. He's referring again to this cup. Your will be done. And then the third time he prays, he prays the same words. Okay, so this prayer is incredibly important to help us understand why Jesus faced his death with such agony. The setting reveals that what Jesus was facing was a suffering of a unique kind. Like no other human being was facing a suffering like this. But why did he face this suffering? Some people would say, well, Jesus was surely the Son of God. Surely he wouldn't have suffered so much. And yet what Jesus was doing was far more than just facing his own death. Jesus was facing the prospect of bearing the penalty for sins that he did not commit, which meant a separation from his heavenly Father. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when he said this, he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What Paul is saying, Paul's looking back and reflecting on the death of Jesus Christ for our behalf. And he's saying, here's what's going on. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, when he was facing the prospect of being separated from God, when he was facing the prospect of death, it was so much more than death. Like Jesus was facing the prospect of bearing the penalty of our sin for us in himself. Now, I mentioned the wrath of God. 
Right? Jesus was facing the prospect of bearing the penalty of sins, facing the wrath of God. And, and some people that might say, wow, that really makes me feel uncomfortable to, to talk about God as being a God of, of wrath. Now, the fact that the Bible speaks of God as, as having wrath is very clear from the Bible. In fact, there's a psalm. We like to go to the psalms for comfort, right? But there's a psalm that says that, that God feels indignation with the wicked every day. And so we ask, is this really a kind of God that we want to embrace and run to that feels indignation with the wicked? Well, I want you to think about this carefully. Imagine if your house was broken into and, and some burglar hurt, not only broke into your house, invaded your privacy, damaged your property, but hurt you or worse, people you love. And later on, you're telling somebody about this and you're describing to them what happened to you. And this person that you're telling about this just looks with calmness, indifference. And you ask this person, don't you, don't you feel indignant about this? And the person says, no, not really. What would you conclude about that person? That there's something messed up with their moral compass. If, if describing some injustice, a person doesn't feel indignation, what's wrong with a person like that? Can we expect God, who is the author of all good goodness and beauty and truth, to be a good God and not feel indignation at evil? I mean, what kind of God would he be if you were to look upon the atrocities that are committed in this world with a sense of indifference? No, we don't want a God like that. We, if God will be God... To look upon evil means necessarily that God will feel indignation for that evil. And so it must be true. If God is going to be a God of love, he must be a God of, of wrath too. It's not the fact that God is somehow divided, that he, is, he has some sort of psychological problem. He gets angry and he's loving. No, his, his anger is the, the flip side of the coin of his love. He must be wrathful against sin if he's going to be a God at all. But here's the problem for us. We don't want a God that can't be wrathful against sin. But if we do have a God that feels indignation of sin, that is not good news for us because we find that the evil rage is not only outside of us but within. There is a, a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn who he served in the Soviet army during World War II. And then after uh, being a soldier in, for the Soviet army, he was sentenced to spend eight years in a Soviet labor camp for criticizing Joseph Stalin in a personal letter. Eight years, labor camp, critical remark in a personal letter, that was his penalty. And in those labor camps, Solzhenitsyn was able to observe some of the most barbaric torture that, that can even be imagined. And, and yet, he wrote this, with stunning accuracy about human nature, he said this, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. All right. if, if only we could just take all of humanity and divide them into two parts. Here are the good people and here are the bad people. Let's just drive a line between the good and the bad put the bad over here, destroy them, and we'd all be good. But he says this, you can't do that because the dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing, he writes, to destroy a piece of his own heart? Which means this, 
We can't live without a God that doesn't feel indignation against the wicked. And yet we can't live with a God that feels indignation against the wicked because we are that. And what does this have to do with Jesus' suffering? Back to the question, why did Jesus suffer so? Because Jesus was suffering to bear the wrath of God for people who deserve it. Jesus, who didn't deserve it, that's what he was doing. He was coming before his heavenly Father. He's saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, there are two parts. We're looking now at the reason for Jesus' suffering. And the reason is that he was facing the prospect of bearing the wrath of a righteous God against unrighteous sinners. And there are two components of what Jesus was doing, two parts that we see right in Jesus' prayer. And, and it's a, there's a negative part and a positive part. Negatively, Jesus was bearing the wrath that we deserve. And positively, Jesus is offering the righteousness, his righteousness to us that we didn't deserve. All right, so we'll, we'll, we'll deal with these. And we see these right within Jesus' prayer. So when he says, my father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, we see the negative part of what Jesus was doing. That is bearing the wrath of God because he refers to this cup. Now, if we're going to understand this prayer at all, and if we're going to understand why Jesus suffered so intensely so that we can understand for ourselves whether we can follow Jesus through life and death, we need to understand what the meaning of this word cup is. What is this cup that Jesus is talking about? Some people say, oh, the cup was just the providence of God, God's general leading in, everyone has a cup, they have to drink. It's, it's, it's the, the circumstances and events and relationships that God puts us into. But actually, as you look at the Old Testament, there is a very clear meaning of this word cup that Jesus is drawing from when he prays, oh Lord, let this cup pass from me. I'm going to read some verses to you from the Old Testament that will clue you in to what this cup is really referring to. This is Psalm 75. A cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Here's another verse from Jeremiah 25. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, take this cup of the wine of, the, of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I send among them. The prophet Ezekiel calls this a cup of horror and desolation. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 16, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The prophets, they, they, they have this vision of, of the last days in which God is going to pour out his judgment upon the world. It's almost as if all the nations are lined up and there's this cup being passed from one to the next and they all must drink of it. And what that is in that cup is this, the undiluted, intense wrath of God for their destruction. And, and now what Jesus is doing in the Garden of Eden, he is envisioning that cup of God's wrath, not being offered to the nations who deserve it, but now being extended to him as the sinless Son of God, a cup that's foaming and undiluted and, and bubbling in its frothy intensity that contains all the wrath of God. No wonder Jesus falls on his face and says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You see, Jesus was facing far more than the prospect of his death. He was facing the prospect of taking the cup of God's wrath and draining it right to its very dregs for the sake of sinners. 
It was a cup he didn't deserve. It was a cup he didn't, there, he did nothing wrong at all. It was a cup that was meant for, for sinners. And yet it was a cup that was being offered to him to consume on behalf of sinners. That's what Jesus means when he says for the second, when he prayed for the second time, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. This is what Jesus was doing. This is why Jesus was facing such wrath. It's as if God looks at the sinful world and in his righteous, just, deserved indignation says, here's a cup that all your sin deserves. It is the cup of my wrath. And yet instead of it be handed, being handed to every sinner in the world, there comes a champion, a sinless savior. He snatches that cup and he says, I will drink it. No wonder Jesus falls in his face. No wonder Jesus cries out to God and looks at this cup with horror and says, if it's possible, let this pass from me. Because it meant Jesus being separated from the one whom he loved the most and the one whom, who loved him the most. That is his heavenly father. We know that Jesus loved righteousness and hated iniquity. But now he was being offered a cup that represented the punishment for iniquity. You see, the difference between Jesus' death and the death of any other being is that every human being has no choice but to face death. Death is just woven right into the fabric of human existence. And yet Jesus, because he never sinned, didn't deserve death. The choice to receive the death as a punishment for sin was something that Jesus had to voluntarily take. He actually had to exercise his will to do it. That's why he said, not my will, but yours be done. You see what Jesus was doing? He was actually obeying the Father. He was obeying the hardest command that could ever be obeyed. And that takes us to the positive aspect. The negative aspect of what Jesus was doing here, the negative reason why he was suffering is because he was taking on himself, facing the prospect the, of, of consuming the wrath of God on our behalf. But positively, Jesus was offering to sinners his righteousness and his obedience. So when Jesus said this, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, it reminds us of this whole theme all throughout the Bible that from Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter from the beginning of the Bible, human beings had said, not your will, but mine be done. You see, in the Garden of Eden, another garden, thousands and thousands of years before, a human man, Adam, had said to God, reaching for a fruit that was forbidden, not your will, but mine be done. And now in another garden, the second Adam reaches for the cup of God's wrath and says, not my will, but yours be done. What a prophet, what a priest, what a king. Prophets and priests and kings throughout the Bible had always said, not your will but mine be done. What a King David was. And yet even David reached for the forbidden fruit of Bathsheba and said, not your will but mine be done. What a prophet Moses was. Yet even Moses reached for out of anger. He struck a rock when God had told him to speak to it. And he said, not your will but mine be done. Prophets, prophets failed God and said, not your will, but mine be done. And finally, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king in the Garden of Gethsemane reaches for the cup of God's wrath and says, what every human being should have said all along, not my will, but yours be done. And it's that obedience that Jesus is offering to us. You know, you think about the pain and misery it's associated with 
the human existence, the evil that people are capable of doing, it could all be traced back to this. People are saying, not your will, but mine be done. We all have this will that is contrary to the will of God. I think I've told some of you this story before, but a while ago, I was in a playground with my daughter. She was two at the time. And a little boy came up to her with a stick and started scratching her. So I picked up my daughter and because I was bigger than the little boy, uh, he backed off. But then he came back to me and he started scratching me with that stick. And so I said to him, gently but firmly, don't do that. Of course, he backed off a little bit, but then he took that stick and with a scratching motion in the air, not touching anybody, said, scratch, scratch, scratch. What a will we have. Even when prevented from getting our own way, we express it in all kinds of ways. You see, Jesus came to do not his own will, but the will of the Father, the will of his heavenly Father. The writer of Hebrews says, quoting Psalm 46 through 8, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And by that will, we have been sanctified that the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In other words, remember we talked about the negative aspect and the positive aspect of what Jesus was doing. Negatively, Jesus was taking in, bearing the punishment for our sin. Positively, Jesus is offering to us his obedience, his righteousness, his, his perfect doing of the will of God for those of us who fail to do the will of God. And that's what makes Jesus' death unique. That's what makes his suffering unique. Some people die because they give up on life. Some people die for fame. Some people die for great ideas. Some people die for loved ones. All people die as a result of the fall. Jesus died for none of these reasons. He died for people that hated God. He died to bear the penalty for sinners. Jesus' death, Jesus died, Jesus suffered to bring sinners to life. So we looked at the setting of Christ's suffering in the garden, the reason for Christ's suffering, and what was the outcome. You see, the outcome of Jesus' suffering was that Jesus did bear the penalty of God's wrath for sin, but that Jesus was vindicated as the Son of God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father, there was an angel, uh, Luke tells us, that ministered to him. But there was no voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus has heard that voice throughout his life at certain points. At his baptism, Jesus said, this is my beloved son. At the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus appeared before Peter, James, and John, a voice came from heaven like thunder and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was no such voice. But in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God the Father was declaring unequivocally, without any question, this is my beloved son. And for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we have this unspeakable privilege that God says to us, and you are my beloved son. And you are my beloved daughter. Why? Because God doesn't look at us in our unrighteousness and our sin and our disobedience. He looks at us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ 
who bore our sins in himself and offers to us his righteousness. That's the outcome of the suffering of Jesus. It's the salvation of people who believe in him. That's why Jesus suffered. Not a death like Socrates. Not a death for himself, but a death for sinners. A death for you and me. And what does this mean for us then? I want to I close with just four points of application that I think that we could take with us that can help inform how we live and how we approach our week this coming week. First of all, forgiveness for sins. Are you under a load of guilt right now? Are you listening to this message and you're sitting in your living room or just maybe watching it on your phone and you stumbled across this live stream somehow and, and, and you didn't have much else going on right now, but you are listening to someone teach the word of God and you realize that you are under a load of guilt. There is sin. You've tried to scratch and claw your way to righteousness and found that to be completely futile. And then you realize that in Jesus Christ and in Jesus alone is the solution to your search for rest and peace. My friend, you can have that by putting your trust in Jesus because he suffered for you, for forgiveness of your sins. But second, those of you who may have done that, you may be trusting in Jesus as your Savior. This point of application is this. Jesus suffered, and this gives us comfort in a world of selfishness. Look around us. You think, man, is everybody just pursuing their own way? Is everybody just out for themselves? And then, and then you look at what the king of the universe did. How did he conquer? He didn't conquer by seeking his own interests. He, he conquered, he triumphed by saying, not my will, but yours be done. All right, what comfort this gives us that Jesus who rules the world and who one day will rule everything perfectly is a Jesus who is perfectly loving as well as perfectly powerful. So don't be discouraged, my friend. Jesus gives of himself and sets for you an example to give of yourself as well. Forgiveness of sins, comfort in a world of selfishness. But third, power for you to say, not my will, but yours be done. You know, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done to his heavenly father. And Jesus submitted to the will of his father. And that submission to the will of his father gives you the power to submit to God as well. It, it naturally, in our own selves, we, we don't want to will do the will of God. We want to do our own will. But, but because of Jesus, because Jesus has forged that path for us. I mean, Jesus, as the, the, the triumphant Son of God, he has, he has slashed through the tangled forest of our will, blazing a path, and we can follow that now. And, and we, by his power and in God's grace, can say day after day, not my will, but yours be done. Not my, and maybe you find yourself just wrapped by the cords of lust or anger or bitterness, and you find yourself going back again and again to this whole, this whole mantra of not your will, mine, not your will, mine, and you're not giving a God some sort of sin in your life. My friend, because of what Jesus has done, you can. Jesus has forged that path for you. Jesus said to his father, not my will but yours be done so you can say to your father in heaven not my will but yours be done and how are you going to do this there's only one way to know the joy of the will of God and that's by actually testing it out 
This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you know that the will of God is so good? How are you going to know? Taste it. Try it. And you'll find that your will will be bound up with the will of God. I've shared this story before, but I love it. It's about Amy Carmichael. She's a great missionary to India, but as a little girl, she had uh, brown hair and brown eyes, and she wanted to have blue eyes and blonde hair and like her friends, and she would pray. She'd say, Lord, give me, give me blonde hair. Give me blue eyes like my friends. God never answered that prayer. The story's even told that she prayed one night before she went to bed that she would have blonde hair and blue eyes. She got up the next morning, looked in the mirror, and sure enough, she was staring back at those brown eyes. Eight years later, God called her to India where the people had brown hair and brown eyes that helped her blend in with the people and not be a distraction to the message, the glorious message of the gospel. And then did she know that the will of God was perfect. She would later write this poem, And shall I pray thee, change thy will, my Father, until it be according unto mine? But no, Lord, no, that shall never be. Rather, I pray thee, blend my human will with thine. And in that, my friends, we can pray the prayer with Jesus, that which we can never do in our own strength. Not my will, but thine be done, because Jesus prayed that for us and suffered for us. We can live to the glory of God. My friends, that's this message from Matthew chapter 36, 26, 36 to 46. And I hope you find courage and joy in that today. Those of you who regularly attend Trinity Baptist Church, those of you who are members, man, I miss you a lot. I pray for you. I've been calling you. And if I haven't called you yet, Lord willing, either I or one of the other pastors or deacons will, we want to be certain that you're doing well. As Pastor Ben said, the beginning of this broadcast. If you are in need of help, please reach out to us. There's many ways you could do that. The best way is by email through the church website. You'll find that in the Contact Us page. And if you're watching this, and if you pray to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, or if you have a spiritual need, you can use that same way of contacting us to let us know so we can get in contact with you and, and help you. God is with you, and I'm praying that God will continue to be with you throughout the rest of this week. Again, I miss you. We're praying that the Lord would help us uh, during this time of separation. I'm going to have a word of prayer, so I invite you to bow your heads and pray with me as we close this time. Our Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you'd work it deep into our hearts. We know that your word gives life. It convicts, it corrects, it reproves. Father, may we find joy this week, not joy in our circumstances, they change. Not joy in our strength, our personality, that changes. But joy in your will. We pray this in Jesus' name.